0: Well, as you can see, we're still getting used to all the ways that we've changed our gathering uh, over and over the last uh, 18 months, but thanks, Sarah Lynn, and thank you guys for making the Bible reading motion so that I realized that we'd forgotten. That's great. Um, so Psalm 47, uh, we, we sang Psalm 46 this morning in the gathering. That wasn't intentional, um, but it's really this beautiful, beautiful intro, I think, to Psalm 47 in a lot of ways. Uh, But as we begin looking at it, I I wanted to to think about this with you a little bit. I don't know if you realize this, but the right to self-determination is the highest value in our society. And the highest value in our society is this belief that that we have the right to determine our lives. We believe that, that the thing that matters most is you deciding your truth, your path, you following your heart. You determining your identity. We all want to be king essentially in all areas of our lives as ourselves as the highest authority. And what we think, what we think is this, we think that it's going to make us happy. What we think is that the more that we pursue this path, the more freedom that we can attain for ourselves, that we're going to finally find the satisfaction for our souls, the flourishing life, That we desire. This is is how we're going to get it. If I can just be free, free from societal constraints, free from religious norms, free from authority figures, just ask your kids what they think would be a good idea in their lives, you know, free from my parents, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. But today, when we live with the most freedom in history, That's not even really arguable with the most freedom in history to determine your path, your way. Are we happy? Have we found what we're looking for? Could it be that maybe freedom is bad for us? Our society is fractured. We're experiencing a pandemic of depression and anxiety. Could it be that actually we're kind of bad at being king? This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 47, and we're going to look at the joy of God's people. It's a psalm full of rejoicing, full of delight, full of celebration. The joy of God's people as they come to him, not self-determined, but joyfully submitted, conquered by the love and awesome grandeur of the good King. And the question I want you to wrestle with this morning as we look at this psalm is this. Could it be that the happiness that we're looking for is found not in our self-rule, but in submitting to the good king? Submitting to the rule of God in our lives. To be ruled by the king of kings. So our outline this morning is look at Psalm 47 is this. We're going to look at God the king. And we're going to look simply at his rule and his mission. So God the king, we're going to look at his rule. and we're going to look at his mission. And we're going to jump into it at verse one. And our first point, God the king. It begins with a call to worship. First one, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This psalm begins with a call to worship. And to get an idea of what it's really talking about, you have to imagine maybe a concert that you've been to. You know, in a large concert, you imagine all the crowds around. You kind of get a sense of the people and the crowd. Imagine maybe a a sports event. Imagine the Olympics, but like with people in the stands, you know, as they're, they're gathered around. And then you have to situate all those people and all that stuff that's going on on a road. Making the ascent up 780 meters up into Jerusalem with all the crowds gathering around, singing and rejoicing and clapping their hands. Imagine... The dust. Imagine the sweat. Imagine the smiles as these ancient people are coming together according to the worship of Israel, singing this psalm, looking forward to coming together and worshiping God. By the way, I think there's even something here to instruct us. Right? These are an ancient people here. Uh, ancient people, by the way, had lots of suffering in their lives. But even in their suffering, there's this incredible cause for rejoicing. They're filled with joy. What what is that cause for rejoicing? Look at verse 2. It's this. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The reason for the rejoicing, for the call to worship, is for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. The psalmist is saying the God of the Bible is the ruler of all things. And Christ's city, that is good news. It is good news to stand before him in submission, in worship, in rejoicing. The psalm is telling us, this verse is telling us, that he is this preeminent ruler in two different ways. That first line in verse 2, the psalmist calls God most high. The word in Hebrew is Yon. What's happening is that in the ancient peoples surrounding Israel, they had a god named El, and they worshiped this god named El. And they called him El El-Yon. El the Most High, the, the King of the gods. But here in this line of Hebrew poetry, it's spun on its head for Yahweh Elion. For the Lord is most high. For there is a great ruler and a great God, but it's not the gods that you're accustomed to worshiping. It is this God who has acted on behalf of this people, who is doing good in this world, in this kingdom. In the second line, we see that God is this preeminent ruler, not just as the God of gods, but as the king of kings on the, the sphere of the human plane, the rulers of the earth. We see that because he's called the great king. God is the great king. You need to realize that that's actually a semi-formal title in the ancient world. Right? So if you were, if you were the preeminent ruler at that time, if you were a king at that time, you'd call yourself the great king to your subjects. If you were the alpha king in the room, you kind of beat your chest, right? Great king over here. And you'd put down all the other kings around you. This actually happened, by the way, in the Bible. We can, read, we can see an example of this. Not just, we see it in some ancient texts and ancient writings, but we also see it in Isaiah 36, verse 4. Because there, this representative of Assyria's king named the Reb he says this to Israel's king. He says, to Hezekiah, thus says the great king. Again, that, there's that, that formal title again. We, we kind of pass over it in our English Bibles. The king of Assyria is the great king. On what do you re, uh, rest this trust of yours? He asked the question. But by contrast in Psalm 47, verse 2, the superpower Assyria has nothing. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. All right, so verse 2 is kind of like a rap lyric, right? You know, you're like this put down of all the other people around you. It's a bit in your face. It's a bit of an aggressive, like, you think this is what's going on? It's not going on. Look, the rulers of this, of this world, they got nothing. God is king. The gods of, of the heavens, they got nothing. God is God. And for us, I think, Christ City, you think you are king, and you're not. And you're not. I think that we think today that, That our bodies, our money, our abilities, our stuff, our house, our food, our lives, our city, our country is ours. But it's not. But it's not. There is a ruler over all things who each of us is answerable to. His name is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has good plans and purposes that are better than yours for his purposes to accomplish good in this world. And all of us are his. He's directing all things to his appointed end, not yours. He is the king. God is king period. And this Psalmist says rejoice. It's good news. It's the news that you need to hear. He is king and you are not. He is to be feared. Verse 2 says that, again, I'm going to read it. For the Lord most high is to be feared. But notice the Psalms and the people in this Psalm, they're not quavering in fear. right? They didn't just watch a horror movie and are having a hard time sleeping. right? They're not responding with this kind of fear before God. the fear that they're experiencing is this fear that is mixed with rejoicing. They're celebrating, they're clapping their hands with joy. And the fear that they're talking about here, that the psalmist is talking about is really a trembling awe. I think we've lost a lot of credit or a lot of use from that word awe. We put it in words like awesome or awful. And we call our toast in the morning awesome. And, And the way that I spilled the sugar on the counter when I was making something awful. Right, but but this is talking about God who is worthy of all of our awe and this incredible, big, trembling submission and worship before Him. And this trembling awe is good for us. I was reading a little book called Rejoice and Tremble by a theologian named Michael Reeves, and honestly, I It's so good. I highly recommend it for all of you guys to read it. I'm going to take my community group through it at some point. Um, But in this book, I noticed this. He was writing about the way that in 2018, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology reported this. Very interesting. Reported, when individuals encounter an entity that is vast and challenges their worldview, they feel awe. Which leads to self-diminishment and subsequently Humility, And the journal article goes on to talk about all the ways that's so good for you as a human being. Then also, again, this is not my research. This is Michael Reeves. He also quotes from another journal um, called Emotion. Reporting that, and he talks about the, the way that they did this study and they reported that every participant in their trials, after experiencing awe, they reported decreased symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. They reported not even that. They actually talked about how they scored Measurably greater in areas of happiness and well-being and satisfaction and contentment in life. Having kind of gotten out of themselves a little bit and been awed by something bigger than them. See, feeling awe in the presence of something bigger than yourself is good for you. It's good for you. I think you can relate to this. Right? There's, there's hikers in this room. I know there's lots of them. Why do you go to the mountaintops? Right? Is, is it there to, you, to admire yourself? To bring your mirror with you and check your hair? Or is it there to get lost in something bigger than you? Right? We go to these incredible vistas to see something bigger, more wonderful. I remember when I was a little boy for the first time having a friend come over with a telescope, and his dad knew something about astronomy, and we, we got the telescope set up when I saw the craters on the moon for the first time, and the rings on Saturn. I was like, this is crazy. I thought these were just little dots up in the sky. There's a universe up there that I hardly even know anything about and it's enormous, it's big. You begin to start to get a better picture of who you are in your smallness as you're looking out at something much faster and bigger than you are. And the thing is, it's good for us. It's good for us. Sadly, we have a problem. Our modern way of living in this world is to introvert and to introspect, right? To to live our lives, not in feelings of awe, getting stuck outside of ourselves, but to go ever deeper and ever more inward, right? To to my thoughts, my truth, how I feel. I want to know how I feel. I want to pursue that and understand it and, and get down and get to the depths of it, right? We go deeper, inward, 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 inward. But is it making us happy? Is it good for us to go forever in? See, the scriptures communicate that this awe, trembling before God is good for us. What you need is to be awed by something huge and there's nothing huger than God. He's awesome with a capital A. Let me tell you about him. He's perfect. The God of the Bible is perfect. All of his ways are just, the Bible says. He never does anything wrong. In all of his acts, he does what is right and good. Can you imagine that? Some, a being whose very motivations, internally and externally, they always line up with this wholehearted acting as a person for good, for what is right. He defends the weak. He is just. He's powerful. The scope of his powerful is frighteningly awesome. In Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist declares that this God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He holds our lives together. He carries us in the palms of his hand. He sustains our very breath. Everything that we experience in this life is a gift from him, from his mercy and kindness given to us, the Bible declares. His eyes Pierce through every motivation and every desire that you have, as He is the perfect Judge. It's frightening, and it's true. You can't hold up your excuses and your thoughts to before God. He sees through you. You are naked before Him, without defense, in His perfections and His righteousness. If He appeared here in this room, like He has before people in the Bible in the past. We would fall on our faces before him. We would tremble before him. We would suddenly catch a glimpse of who we really are in contrast to his awesome perfection. We would be humbled to our core. But Christ City, he's good. He's merciful. He does not give to us what we deserve, he's gracious. He gives us blessings that we haven't earned. He's a love. The steadfastness commitment of the love of God in the Bible. It has no analogy in your life. You don't have another person. Like I know when I see love in my grandma, cause she's just so great because your grandma's love does not measure against the love of the God of the Bible steadfastly working for good, using his resources, not for his own benefit, but to dispense them for the good of his people from the beginning of the story of human history until now, accomplishing his purposes to his own glory. He is to be feared. He is good. And the psalmist knows this. This almost knows this and has experienced it because he's part of this people that God has been working with, accomplishing good in the world with. Look at verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4 say this, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He shows our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, Jacob, whom he loves. And these verses are referring to the way that, that God has taken this people, this people who were nothing, Beginning way back in the day with the call um, to Abraham. Taking them from a people who are nothing, building them into a nation. They get enslaved for 400 years. He rescues them out of Egypt. He brings them to this land. He makes them to be a people. He makes them into something wonderful. He promises to bless them and to use them to become a blessing to the entire world. Not because they earned it. Not because they were so special. They were so conscious that it was God's steadfast love towards them that was undeserved. That was the thing that was charging this whole thing forward. And he began ruling over them as their heavenly king, teaching them how to live. Not for their self-rule, but to find flourishing life in submission to his rule. And I realize, I've said all that, I realize these verses are perhaps the most offensive sorts of verses that we could read today. They talk about conquering. Talk about a people saying that God has put nations under our feet. All right, it's all, all the triggers and all the ways. But what I want to show you is that in the story of the, of the Bible, the establishment of God's kingdom through his people is good news. It's good news. Let me, let me show you why. It first starts with recognizing what the problem is. So you and I, I think in life, generally understand that there's a problem here. Right? Does anyone think that there's no problem in this world? I mean, there's these problems here. We see it in, in the wars that are around us. We see it in um, the, the, the way that, that COVID vaccines, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're all over. The rich and powerful nations and all these poor nations have nothing. We see this great discrepancy and, and injustice and horrible things happening across our globe. We know something's wrong. We know something's wrong. The Bible is crystal clear about what that problem is. And what the Bible says, you might not agree with it, but what the Bible claims, what the Bible says is this. Our problem, the problem in this world, is our rebellion against the rule of God. That is the problem. It's that we don't want God to be king. I want to be king. The Bible says that's the problem. And in fact, the first 11 chapters of the book of the Bible go, are, are really about establishing that that is the problem. As first Adam and Eve... Reject God's plans and purposes and rules in their lives and try to go their own way. No, thanks God. I think I'm going to find flourishing life over here. I can do it my way. And then from that comes disaster after disaster after disaster. Those first 11 chapters are like Breaking Bad or like the infinite number of of imitations of Breaking Bad that are out there today to to watch the, the bad thing go from worse to worse to worse, right? Their kids murder one another. Their grandkids boast, hey, we're not just murderers. We're seven times more murderous than our parents, Right? And it spirals downward to this time and place where God says, all that's going on in this world is awful. And I'm grieved to my heart by how it's wicked all the time. The hate, the murder, the strife, the selfishness is out of control. It's bad. But he has a, a solution. He has a plan. In the narrative of the Bible, God's plan is into this world where people rule themselves and it's bad. I'm going to begin to establish my rule through a family. And in chapter 12, he calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to be in a special relationship with me. What you need to do is love me and obey me and trust me. And when you do that, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to use you to be a blessing as I make you into a kingdom that will be a different kind of kingdom in this world. See, God's plan to fix what was wrong is to bring this rebellious world back to himself in joyful, joyful submission by extending his good rule through this family of Abraham. In Christ City, we actually can trace back in history and see some of the good that's happening from what was going on there in that story. We see it in history. Right? So we're modern people, and today we think that the ideas of justice that we live with and take for granted— the idea that we should care for the vulnerable and the oppressed people in this world in Vancouver. We think, hey man, that came from the Enlightenment, right? That, that came from, from modern scientific people casting off the, the burden of religion and moving forward into this bright, new, glorious day. But it's not true. It's not true. It comes from God beginning to work back against the self-rule of people that bring harm to the world by establishing a people that are submissive to Him taught by Him. I want to show you that in just one passage. There's this beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 to 22 where God's establishing his relationship with his people. The psalmist knows these passages by heart, right? Like he loves this stuff. This is where he's coming from. when He's talking about the rejoicing of what God's doing and establishing them as a kingdom. And in this passage, God says this. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, not in your ways, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. See, God's commandments are not for our harm. They're for our good. Time and again, scripture is clear about this. For verse 17 says this, for the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See the logic in this passage? And so it's love God, obey him, be taught by him, follow him, right? Be this kind of people that start to live out the character of God in justice and caring for the oppressed and caring for those around you. Why? Because that's who God is. Because that is God himself. His character is that sort of character. Obey and imitate him. And this is unique. This is absolutely unique in human history at the time. The enemy nations around Israel, they look at them and they would say, you guys are nuts. Why are you using all your power and your advantage for the good of these weak, stupid people around you? Like just take... What you have already and oppress people, crush them. Show your dominance in this world. Why would a God of all that power humble himself and care for weak people? We don't do that. We don't do that here. But This is the way that God works and begins to show something good by establishing his kingdom in this world. And Christ said, you have to say this. It's not just me saying this. You might be thinking, hey, Brent, he's a pastor pretty pumped up with the Bible. You know, he's just making stuff up to try and convince us that there's good stuff going on here. This is not just me. There's so many people that are writing about this right now. Uh, I could give you a a bunch of names and a list of what's going on. But more than that, I'm just going to give you one name. The famous 19th century philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He understood this. And he hated it. I was reading the essay, Good and Evil, Good and Bad, in Nietzsche's on the genealogy of morals this week. And it's interesting because we need to believe in the survival of the fittest, right? And so what he thought was wrong with his society was the way that, was the way, was the way that we actually cared for the weak people. He's like, no, for, for human society to flourish and grow and to evolve and advance, we need to stop doing that. We need to let the, the powerful be powerful. Let the strong be strong and then just go with it. And so then he looks back on human history and he certainly, he hates Christianity. But beyond that, he said, I, I'm, I'm really against this whole Judaism thing. Because in Judaism we see this abysmal turning on its head of the strong being strong. We see this care for the weak. He looked at Judaism and he said, "This is patient zero for all that's wrong in this world," and he said, "Not be this way." Christ said, "In his defense, we look at Nietzsche. We think that's terrible. Our impulse as human beings is the same as his. He just said the stuff out loud that we think. Our impulse as human beings is." To use all that is ours, all of our benefit, all of our power, all of our possessions for ourselves, for our own good. It is the God in the Bible uniquely working through his people, bringing them into submission to himself, that begins to turn that on its head. To bring an ethic of compassion, an ethic of justice into this world. And way back at the beginning of the Bible, this is what God was doing. This is why Psalm 47 is joyful. Rejoicing that God is a kind of God that is establishing a kingdom here in Israel. He's doing something good in a world that loves themselves and it's bad. And they cause all this harm to live in submitted rule to God is good for us. It is a good place worthy of rejoicing. Worthy of rejoicing. Look at our second point and consider the rule of God and look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Super repetitive, right? The the psalmist again commands this praise to God. Praise him. Praise him. He's worthy of your praise. And he overflows with this repetition. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. And again, we can learn something from this. Because in the psalms, we see this enthusiastic, often embodied worship commanded to God. Enthusiastic, embodied worship to God. I have to tell you a story about this. When I was younger, back in my teens, I went and spent some time in Zambia. I lived there for for, uh, three months. And while I was there, I had this incredible opportunity to go with a group of people um, and to worship together with one of the local Zambian churches. This is a really poor area. Um, It was like a mud hut church and it was tight. You know, you could get probably 100 people in there if they're like shoulder to shoulder. Um, And we sat down in a row. And the people that I were with were wonderful, salt of the earth, uh, Mennonite brethren uh, from our denomination. And and we were there together in a row. And if you know anything about the Mennonite brethren, uh, people that are from that heritage, when you get going in worship, they worship like this. And what was happening was that, was that they were doing this, but it was getting more and more uncomfortable because the Africans... I mean they're clapping their hands and they're singing and they're 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 dancing, they're getting involved. And eventually the congregation left their pews and started dancing in circles around the church. All the while, my row is like this. Right? They couldn't get out of their own culture to worship and to praise God in this embodied way. And all I want to share with you from that is this: Christ said, it is okay to make a fool of yourself. In worship and adoration for God. To clap our hands, to raise our hands, to move around, to show in this gathering that we love Him. Get your eyes off yourself and your neighbor and just look at Him. Worship Him with all your heart. He's worthy of our praise. And the psalmist tells us why again in verse 7 For God is the King of all the earth. So sing praises to Him with a psalm. Sing praises to him with this psalm. It's interesting. God is the king of all the earth. We know the context, right? This is a little tiny, super small kingdom. Israel and just part of the world. And yet there's this big picture. He's the king of all the earth. I think what's going on is that this passage begins to get prophetic in its scope. It recognizes what God is doing to work good in this world by Working his plan to bring everything in submission under himself. To bring flourishing as he brings peoples into submission under himself. And it's prophetic looking forward to the time when all peoples will be submitting to and worshiping and rejoicing before this God. Look at how the psalmist describes this in verses 8 and 9. He says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the Earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. When it says "God reigns over the nations," it's using a specific word in, in Hebrew that's referring to all the surrounding non-Jewish peoples. When the psalmist is describing his way that all of those peoples are now coming together as worshipers. From the rulers and the rich people and the kings to the the weak and the poor and the small. They're coming together and rejoicing and worshiping this God. They're attracted to him. It's like this magnet is drawing them to the God of the Bible. There's examples of this, of course, already in the Old Testament. There's a story of Rahab when the people are entering the promised land and and conquering Rahab is this prostitute who, who takes refuge in the people of God, who is honored as she takes refuge as a worshiper of Yahweh in the genealogy of Jesus. She shows up there. There's another story of course, of, of Ruth in the Bible. And what had happened was that Ruth was this Moabite woman who now comes with her mother-in-law and famously says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She takes refuge in the God of Israel. But we should ask ourselves, why would they want to do this? Why would people submit themselves to this God? First, City, it's because of this. It's because his rule is so much different and better than any human rule. Verse 8 says, God sits on his holy throne. When, when the Bible talks about God being holy or holiness, it's talking about God being this transcendent, perfect being who's different than any of us in this creation. Different from us in his perfections and his goodness, in his love and his graciousness. He's uniquely holy because he's uniquely him. There's no one like him. And to see him in his holiness is to catch a glimpse of just how awesome he is in in his perfections, right? And again, as we do that, we fall before him in worship. And yet in scripture, various objects as well as his people can be called holy. Like God's throne in verse 8. God's throne is called holy here. What does that mean? Well, in this context, what it's saying is that holiness is really about being devoted to God. Holiness is about being consecrated to God's use. So this little shovel way back in the book of Leviticus that was used to to shovel out the ashes after the sacrifices on the altar were burnt up. The shovel was called holy, right? It's not like God in its awesome beauty. It's holy because it's consecrated to God in its use, right? And the people of God and the throne of God in the same way are consecrated, devoted to God in its use. What does that mean? It means that when the psalmist says here, that the throne is a holy throne. He's saying that God's rule is different from any earthly rule because his rule is characterized by a devotion to his own character. In every way, that throne, that rule is devoted to God. Not one element of that rule be any way inconsistent with who God is in his perfection of holiness and his holiness and his character are attractive. They're attractive. It doesn't draw, it doesn't push people away, it actually draws people to himself. I want to show you what I mean as we look now at our last point in verse 9 again in God's mission. The psalmist says, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Right? And this is this beautiful, huge, global vision. We've already talked about that. When the psalm was written, it was only small. When the question for us now is, then how is God going to do that? Right? How is God going to bring all these people's submission to himself? Especially when we consider this psalm and we talk about the things we've been talking about. And if we're honest, we're like, man, I don't know that I want to submit to that God. <laughs> you described him, Brent, in all these ways, and he's terrifying, not comforting. Like, Why would I want to come and submit to him? How would this be a good thing? How does God then draw people who don't want to be submitted to him to joyfully submit to him? How is this prophetic vision of all people worshiping him fulfilled? It's fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Sulfilled through Jesus Christ first by God showing us in Jesus that he is a sinless holy king. He's not like the rulers you are used to thinking of. When we think of power and authority, we think bad and abusive. God shows us in Jesus that is not the case. Jesus didn't abuse his power. God shows us in Jesus that he isn't just a powerful king, but one who is humble. One who is meek. One who compels us at the beauty of God by showing us the contrast of being both infinitely powerful and infinitely low and humble and self-sacrificial in his love for his people. There's so many ways that we see this in Jesus life as he shows us who God is in his rule. You can see it of course, in the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter six. I love Mark six because there's a contrast in Mark six between King Herod King Herod, who the story goes, just murdered John the Baptist and cut his head off because of his own selfish pride and conceit. And you flip the section and you look at Jesus, who looks at the crowds who are hungry around him. They follow him out when he's tired one day. He doesn't push them away. He keeps teaching them, keeps loving them. They're hungry. They haven't thought about the lunch that they pack. He's humble. and He's like, well, you know, we can, we can do something about this. And He feeds them. In the Bible, we see Jesus as the king, the exalted God of gods and king of kings who comes down and heals the blind and the sick and the lame. Who spends time with the sinners and the rejected from society that all the righteous, self-righteous people hated. And we don't want to be around. God shows us in Jesus that he is a God who defends the weak from the cruelty of religious rulers who love their legalism more than mercy. Jesus, we see that God is a strong king, immovable in his courage to give himself to save us. As he goes to the cross, as he shows us that he is a king who lays his life down in love for his people. In his justice and his perfection, he's against us. In his perfection and his justice, his judgment stands against us and we ought to deserve punishment from this perfect God for the way that we have rejected his rule. But what does God do in his love? He says, I've got a way. I'm going to show myself coming as a human being and dying, taking my own justice upon my shoulders so that you can be forgiven as I die for you. He's a king who lays his life down for the good of others. Christ City, when we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, our eyes are open to see that God's rule is a good thing. Look at Philippians 2 verses 8 to 11, and we see the way that the humility of Christ as king comforts us compels us. It says this, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Just like Psalm 47 is talking about. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's more because Jesus doesn't just win our affection to God as king by showing us his humility. He wins our affection by doing what we can't do for ourselves because we think our freedom will buy us happiness, but Jesus had to die and be resurrected to give us the happiness we couldn't find on our own. He died taking us with him in our sin, taking death with him to die forever taking Satan's power in our lives to be crushed so we can be resurrected with him to new life, freed from the things that, that keep tripping us up as we're trying to find freedom. But don't you find as you're living your life for yourself that there's these things in the way of what you want? I want a good family. I want a good career. I want good friendships. But I'm petty and I can't stop. I'm selfish and I can't quit it. I'm proud and I'm easily angered. And it seems to destroy my relationships. I'm stuck in my addictions and they keep ruining my life. See, Jesus is a God who is a King who can give you what you can't give yourself by freeing you into his life through his resurrection. This is who he is. He is good. He's worthy of our worship. And as he shows us these things, we joyfully submit to God as our eyes are open to Jesus Christ. I was at a staff meeting this week on Wednesday um, at the church. And I watched this happen in real time. As people were joyfully submitting to Jesus. What was going on is one of our our staff members, Andrea Fast, one of our youth interns, she's leading us into devotional. And she says, man, I just want you to share the scriptures that have been ministering to your heart this last year. What are the ones that you go to often and frequently? And we started to go around the room, and and it was this, this sober, joyful moment, hard to describe. As people got real, as they looked to the God of the Bible, taking comfort in his word, talking about how special these scriptures were for them. Scriptures like this, Isaiah forty twenty eight to 29. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has not might, he increases strength. Or a very different passage in Lamentations 3, 17 to 21 to 24. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Or Acts 20 verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Grace city. As each person shared in that room, there is joy, but there is submission. As every one of these texts and the story of their life was a story about submitting to a good King. Finding refuge in a God who's bigger than me. Gets my eyes off of me. Directs me to worship him. Who sustains me through the darkness. Worshipping him. I bet we could do the same thing in this room. Share scriptures and share stories of coming to know this God. Submitting to him in worship and adoration. Look, verse 9 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather and the, as the people of the God of Abraham. Christ this passage is being fulfilled through Jesus, through this church. This passage is being filled through Jesus, through his global church. You know what's happening today on Sunday? Billions of Christians in millions of churches around the world are finding flourishing life in submitting to this God. He's the king, not me. Happiness and the life I want is found in him, not in me ruling. And they're raising their hands and losing themselves in worshiping him for his glory. You know how those people got into those churches? Not by being conquered by Israel but being conquered by the love of Christ. As people like you went to their neighbors and said, you know what? turns out I'm not very good at being king, but I found a good one. Can I tell you about him? Won't you come with me? And will you find life with me in worshiping Jesus? Christy, will you pray with me? Father, we want to be a church in love with you, submitted to you. And Father, we need your help at every way and every point in this path because we love ourselves so much and we serve ourselves so much, but it doesn't give us the life that we want. So in your mercy and your grace, would you free us from us? Would you lift our eyes? Would you send us out on mission this week to tell the news of a good king? One whose kingdom is flourishing life. One who instructs us when we don't know how to live and we don't. God, glorify yourself. In the name of Jesus, here in this church, we pray, amen.